Hello and welcome to Adventures in Venue Land, an EAMC podcast. This is your all-access pass to go backstage and behind the scenes with some of the brightest minds that cross the scope of the live entertainment industry. I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. We'll introduce you to some of our favorite people as we dive deep into the world of live touring shows and the venues that host them. And our guest today, the King of Canada, I think uh, is what some, some people folks call him, but he is the manager of live entertainment and venue marketing for Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, Adam Armitage, coming to us from Toronto, international podcasting today. How's it going, Adam? I'm good. How are you guys? Good. We're good. We're good. Let's get right into it. Canada 2020. You guys at Scotiabank Arena have been a big part of the return of live events and NHL hockey, playoff hockey. What's that been like for your team up there? It's been a really special time for our team. You know, we've had a lot of great people, boots on the ground, that were able to have such a successful run in the bubble here in Toronto. And fortunately, I wasn't close enough to it. I didn't get to be in the bubble and I didn't get to see it up close. But it was really something special to sit back and see our building with a heartbeat again. And at the time, being one of two in the world that really had anything going on, even though no fans, you know, it was really special to be able to see hockey games happening day after day after day, multiple in a day, and seeing just the city become vibrant again with two bubbles that were taken over for the hotels and all the those areas and to hear the stories from friends of mine that are inside the bubble and, and all those things happening, you know, it was, it's great. It was great. We did a basketball tournament here in Columbus before the NBA launched that we did a bunch of coverage on ESPN. And I was in that same position of wanting to be at the arena so bad and seeing it broadcast to the world and shared with the world. And I'm not used to not being at the arena. What's that been like for you on a personal level to kind of see your arena there in the bubble, but kind of watching it from home like the rest of us? It was bizarre. You know, it was bizarre because there's so many, even though you couldn't really see the stands and they tarped everything, the NHL made it look fantastic, but it was the exact same as Edmonton. But then there's those little nuances that you can tell by the boards or the railings. You're like, okay, that's that game is definitely happening here or that one's over in Edmonton. But it was... It was bizarre to be on the outside, but it was definitely an experience, that's for sure. Was it weird to have other teams playing against each other in your building that are not the home team? That's got to be kind of surreal, right? You're obviously used to having your team there playing other teams, but it's almost using the venue as a very utilitarian venue instead of the home ice of your team. Oh, absolutely. It was bizarre mainly because if we were having an away game, the Maple Leafs weren't allowed to be in their dressing room. And so the Habs, the Montreal team, Montreal Canadians are our rival. And we had the game where they were in our home dressing room and we were in the visitors. Oh my God. Seeing those photos come out on social media was just something that you would never, <laughs> ever, ever in a million years think would happen. So yeah, it was, it was really weird for that. And I think it was more so not even weird for me, but for our game presentation team who are normally having all of the activity that's going on on the ice, wanting to be able to make it so special, but there was guardrails up of what they could and couldn't do to make it an even playing field for everyone. And so I know that those guys had an interesting time trying to reel it back a bit when the Leafs are playing and to make sure they're pumping it up when when the other ones are on. What kind of mandates or, you know, even guidance at all, we're all so hungry at this moment in time to find anything to talk about on our venue social. 
So does the NHL give you any guidelines that they were passed along through the team of like, hey, you guys can talk about this or you just kind of need to pretend like it's not happening at your venue? What's kind of been your role in this? We definitely wanted to celebrate it on social, right? I mean, in a time where we're all trying to dig up content and trying to figure out what to populate these pages with, it was definitely handed over to us in our lap with, holy man, we've got stuff that we can talk about. But on the flip side, there's really not a lot to talk about, right? There's games happening in the building, but we can't send in a photographer. We can't send in a video team. We can't do this. We can't do that. But there wasn't really any restrictions, so to say. It was, you know, if it was public anywhere else, we were kind of in the clear. We worked closely with our PR team as well, which worked with team uh, the front office as well to make sure that we were in the clear. But for the most part, we acted as if it was an event in the building like no other. So typically on social, we'll post game day graphics of when is puck drop, when did gates open, all that stuff. Obviously this time, no gates opening. And we had to make sure that we were very, very clear that fans were not welcome at the building, around the building. We didn't want people coming down to the building just to see the bubble. We wanted to make sure that we were being very clear that absolutely no crowds were allowed that we're not showing the game on the screen on the outside of our building or anything like that. That was really the only big rule. You know, we're now in a time as this recording that the bubble in Toronto is done, but it's continuing on in Edmonton. And so the rest of our PR strategy and all of that is on pause until the NHL is done. And then we're going to come out with more after that. Congratulations, though, on being able to host that. And the, the building looked great on TV, and that was a lot of fun to watch. You know, here in Columbus, our Blue Jackets... I think, uh, weren't, weren't we in a little game with the, uh, the Maple Leafs there? <laughs> it was fun because it gave us something to talk about, even though, you know, it was just, again, promoting tune-in opportunities. Once you saw that the Leafs were no longer moving forward, was it something you guys kind of backed away from a little bit and talking about too much? Or were the fans still excited just to have something happening there in Toronto? We definitely stayed the course. I mean, we tried to make sure that we weren't talking about the Maple Leafs any more than any other team. When we look at our social strategy from the venue to begin with, we don't really take on the voice of the Leafs or the voice of the Raptors in any way. We take on the voice of what's happening within the building. And so we made sure that we weren't taking any of the light from what would have been on the Leafs social. So it didn't really make a change when, unfortunately, the Leafs went out and we just continued on. You know, you mentioned the Leafs, you mentioned the Raptors. Let's take a step back now for folks who don't know what Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment is. or They don't even know how to pronounce Scotiabank Arena, right? That's one of your challenges. <laughs> Tell us a little bit, we gave the title, but what actually do you do and kind of what are you overseeing up there north of the border? So Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, MLSE for short, is the ownership group for the Toronto Raptors, Toronto Maple Leafs, Toronto Argos, which is our football team for the Canadian Football League, as well as Toronto FC, our soccer team. And we also have our farm teams below those as well. But we also own Scotiabank Arena, which is our main arena, Coca-Cola Coliseum, where our Toronto Marlies play, and BMO Field, our stadium. I mean, and so my role specifically, I oversee all of the marketing efforts for anything outside of sports is kind of the easiest way to nail it down. So the majority of it being concerts and live events, but also all of the venue marketing and the branding surrounding that. And that also has a bit of a dotted line over to our sister venue, which is owned and operated by Live Nation. But we work very closely with Budweiser Stage on that as well. So for the most part, it's all concerts and typical show marketing that we're all very familiar with. But we also branch out a little bit more than I think a lot of arenas do for working very, very closely with our global partnerships team. So our music partnerships team for Live Nation partners nationally. So we'll help activate those partnerships and my team will work on those very closely, as well as all of our premium ticketing has really become a big focus and private members clubs that we're opening up within the venues and 
and really trying to take the fan experience to the next level and really elevating those elements as opposed to just focusing on show marketing and show marketing only is stuff that we're starting to try and churn out a little bit more, even pre-COVID. What do you think you guys do differently in Toronto? Something that you really hang your hat on that kind of like, hey, this is something that our team's pretty good at. I think I'm pretty proud of our artist skipping program that we put together in the last handful of years. I think we do, and the EMC awards also show that. You've won, what, like 40, 48 <laughs> awards or something for that? 50? You're like the Taylor Swift. You're always surprised. <laughs> yeah, you're basically the Shit's Creek of the EAMC awards. You're just sweeping it. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's a Canadian thing. <laughs> I think that's something that I'm super proud of. But we're lucky to have an organization at MLSE that really fosters that, whether it be artist gifting or just wanting to go a bit above and beyond on anything. And so we have the resources internally and externally that we're able to tap into. Now, our organization is 800 full-time staff between all the teams coming together. And our marketing department is, is 150. You know, that's a lot of people and resources that we can tap into. On the live side, my team is only four. So, you know, out of the 150, it's, it's just a bit of a drop in the bucket which allows us to be a bit on an island and kind of do what we need to do to get things done without as much red tape as the brand teams for the teams. But at the same time, allows us to still tap into all of those resources that we need. And we have leadership that believes in the visions that we put together. And, you know, I'll use that artist gifting as an example. Oftentimes people think it's a big budget you need, but it's not. It's not the money. It's the team that uh, has the creativity on the back end that can kind of pull it together. My favorite, I think, was your Bruno Mars gift when you went a little crazy with the 24 karat gold. Do you want to explain what that one was? That was a fun one. Going back to our process, I always have an intern that dives very, very deep into each artist. And, you know, my motto to them is if you don't feel like you're going to get a restraining order or feel creeped out, you haven't dug deep enough. <laughs> Love it. I need a super fan to just, you know, what do they eat for breakfast? And then let's, you know, do something with that. We have them research it. And in that research found out that Bruno Mars loves old school Game Boys and old school video games and plays a Game Boy all the time. So we went back and we sourced um, one of those really old, not even black and white, it's like green and blue or whatever that screen was from the 90s, the original, the OG Game Boy. Yeah. And we took the shell off and we made it gold, not real gold, but we made it gold and had an artist paint on it as well. And then packaged it together in a box that was shaped like a gold bar and did the same thing with the games and customized every little part that we could. But yeah, everything was gold, 24 karat gold. That's great. That was a classic. You kind of hit on it too. Obviously, some venues have more resources than others to kind of just do this whole, we're going to give them a jersey thing. And although that means, I think, something to a lot of artists, particularly if there's ties to that city or that team with that artist, it means so much more when you give an artist something that you know they're actually going to use and they're really going to enjoy. Even if it is temporary, like cookies or something like that, if you know they really enjoy that or they love giving it to their team, then I think it goes that much further because you know it's actually going to land with them. Whereas often, as we see on our side, you give artists a jersey and then Taylor Swift now, she just signs it and gives it back to you and tells you to auction it. But often, if you know anyone who's been on the tours, they'll end up in a pile on the bus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then they literally give it out to the nephew of the third roadie on the light crew gets a custom Gene Simmons hockey jersey. <laughs> I think you kind of hit on it. I think the more you can get into what they personally enjoy, where they'd really appreciate it, the better. 
Yeah. And honestly, I think, you know, we're almost even getting past artist gifts. I think it's more of a welcome and experience. Yeah, exactly. I think back to Ariana Grande, we've had her in the building multiple times and the progression of her gifts has always been kind of fun. But the last time, I mean, we were lucky enough. It was a slam dunk that it was her birthday on the show day. Nice. So we threw a birthday party and she, you know, after doing her research, she eats and catering with the crew every day. She loves that. And so we turned catering into an old school, tacky birthday party with all the streamers and the noisemakers. And it was all over her social media, right? And that's that's a success. And that costs, what, 50 bucks at the dollar store? Something everybody can use. Yeah. You never know where those nuggets are going to come from. <laughs> but that's, that's great stuff. I love it. Do you think post-COVID, there'll be a little bit more emphasis? I mean, you kind of already said it, but more emphasis on the welcome and less on the gift. Because, you know, maybe artists aren't as comfortable meeting with venues and doing trade shots and doing presentations. For sure. And if you can't give it to them and you don't get a photo with them, not that that's the only reason you do it, but then there's no guarantee that that they're going to even see it or get it. Do you think there's more emphasis put on that welcome, you know, where you can kind of roll out the carpet and you know, they're going to see it? Yeah, I think so. And you know what, I think if you look back to pre-COVID in the last handful of months, I think things escalated quite quickly to changing the way that gifting and welcomes were done, where it's now almost expected that you're doing some sort of welcome and making the experience better for everybody from the artist to the crew rolling out of the bus into a new home every day. And how do we change that up and make it a little bit more warm instead of it being such a cold experience? And so I think that was already the trend. And now if they needed any other icing on the cake, it makes so much more sense to try and lean into that now as opposed to anything else. Because yeah, the odds of you getting a trade shot for the next little bit, I think are going to be quite few and far between. And obviously there's going to be artists that are going to love to do it still, but there's ones that were a little lenient before that are probably not going to do it anymore, maybe at all. I, I think we'll get back there. But yeah, I think especially for the short term, you're also going to see a lot of us aren't going to have budgets to work with, right? Right, right. When things come back, we're not going to have big elaborate anything anymore. And I think people will appreciate that. And they'll just be focused on more of safety. The welcome's going to be a well-cleaned, sanitized arena. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Welcome. We cleaned all the railings for you. We hope you enjoy our city. Yeah. Yeah. That's the budget. And that's what you get right now. But we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll do the balloon eight-foot teddy bear for you in a couple of years. Promise. <laughs> Back to normal. Back to normal. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. We'll come back to COVID and the way it's affecting things and kind of the future of things. But, but let's, let's take a step back in time. Let, let's go back to 10-year-old Adam. So, Adam, you're 10 years old. You're in Canada, I'm guessing, right? You're Canadian by birth. Mm -hmm. Who's Adam? Where are you living? And, and let's find out how you got to where you're at today. Oh, man. Starting at 10. Yeah. So, I'm from a very rural, small town in northwestern Ontario, Canada. And so it doesn't really leave a lot to the imagination. Like it's quite literally small town, 7,000 people. Closest city is Minneapolis, Winnipeg, Manitoba, or Thunder Bay, Ontario. Quite literally a, a four or five hour drive to either one of them. So that's the big city is Thunder Bay and you fly out of there. So it's a bit of uh, a roll. Thunder Bay might sound familiar to some people because that's where Michael Rapino is also from. And that kind of ties in later. So I'm from a musical family and, and always knew I wanted to do something with music, but I don't have a musical bone in my body. <laughs> my family's the ones that would go caroling at Christmas. My dad has always played and toured in bands, all the whole thing, but it's, it's not happening. I tried guitar, I tried drums. It was awful, but it started with my dad having to use all of his equipment to DJ my aunt's wedding. And he hated it. And looking back at it, I laugh now because he clearly was just trying to pawn this off. 
that made it seem like a good opportunity. And so he got me to do it. I was 12 at the time. And so 12 year old me is, you know, playing the cha-cha slide and the YMCA and all this on CDs back in the day still. Right. So it's not putting on a Spotify playlist. It was going through CDs. And did you have a DJ name? I didn't have a DJ name, but I had a DJ company name because I got the entrepreneurship bug really quick. And so I started this little company called Wildfire Music. And Wildfire. Ooh, Wildfire. Super cool at the time, <laughs> right? But uh, so started that and started using my dad's equipment and really got this bug of, okay, cool. I think I found something that I can really dig into. And I did. So I started getting contracts from elementary schools that was doing every school dance at every elementary school. Like I was DJing my own grade eight dance. That's awesome. Every contract that I would get, I would use that to buy my own equipment so I wouldn't have to use my dad's. So every time I would swap stuff out. By the time I'm 16, all my friends are buying cars. I bought a utility trailer to haul all my gear in. That's amazing. It was just such a weird, different thing. I DJed high school prom before I was able to go to prom. That was also a little bizarre. Started building it up in, in other regions throughout Northern Ontario. And then we had this fishing festival in my hometown, which was really famous in the time for anglers and would pull in huge crowds. We were the number one beer sales per capita in the country. Like it was actually booming. You know, they had the tent, they had the stage, they had the porta potties, they had the fencing, they had the sound and lights, they had all this, but they didn't have entertainment. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Put some bands on there other than these local bands. Like let's, let's sell some tickets. But how do I do that? And so I I reached out, started volunteering, became the entertainment director within a year. How old are you at this point? At that point, I think I was, I definitely wasn't old enough to sign a contract. I remember that. (laughs) I think I was 17. Okay. 16, 17. Picked up the phone and I did some research and I called an agency here in Toronto, the Felbin agency. They had no idea how old I was, but they took me seriously because I had the festival name behind me. And I booked a band called Trooper, which is like a Canadian classic rock band. And then I booked Tim Mitchell, another Canadian classic rock band the next year and kept on going. Started doing that and then realized I wanted to do concerts on my own. Used that contact, that agent, and he gave me a couple opportunities to do that and booked some bands on my own in Fort Francis is where I'm from. And then other regions, Dryden, Kenora, over to Winnipeg, Thunder Bay. So I started booking shows at the same campus pub that Michael Rapino started booking shows at when he got his start, which I later found out, which I still think is pretty cool. So you all are super tight, right? You and Rapino? Yeah. I mean, I've never met the guy, but... Uh, You're pretty much the same person. Pretty much. I wish. I wish. I wish. I think our paychecks are a little different. <laughs> Just for now, Adam. Just for now. <laughs> But yeah, so started doing shows. As we all know, in the promoting world, you win some, you lose more. It's up and down and up and down. And so I did that for years while I went to school for marketing in London, Ontario, then decided to pull the plug on that just because the ebbs and flows and decided to take a job at a marketing agency where I worked for five years in Toronto. Just marketing in general? It was experiential event marketing. Okay. I would work on anything that was related to music and would produce any show for any of the brands. Okay. So Mountain Dew and Pepsi would do a bunch of shows. We'd put a stage at the bottom of a mountain in in BC and put a rock band after a snowboard competition and all that stuff. Was able to do bigger budgets, corporate brands, still produce and market the events. Eventually, I saw this opportunity at MLSE pop up, threw my name in the ring, didn't think I would even get a call back and got the job. And here I am. And here you are. What a road, right? From starting off as that 12-year-old DJ and four dad, 
And you see the DJs now, right? They show up. They don't have to carry that giant crate of CDs. They will I never know. know the pain you went through. They'll never know. They'll never know. No jumping on the dance floor. You're going to make the CD skip. <laughs> when you think about your career path and what's next for you, do you think marketing is kind of your area and you want to stay in Toronto or, or do you think you're going to be running a building? Are you going to be the next Rapino? What's the long-term uh, goals if, if you even have them at this point? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a great question. At this point, it's just trying to get to the other side of COVID, right? Yeah, right. No kidding. You know, I, I don't know. It's safe to say the music industry is definitely where I'm staying. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Whether it's specifically in marketing or if it's more of a general role in, in terms of the business as a whole, I don't know. It's a great question. I don't, I don't have any reason to leave marketing. This is where I want to be. I do love the city of Toronto. I do love Squishbank Arena and MLSE, but I mean, I'm, I don't know. I don't know if I'll be in the States, if I'll be in Canada. Who knows? Great question. Right. To be honest, none of us know. Stay in Canada. <laughs> yeah, I'll probably stay in Canada. <laughs> so trying to get through the other side of this right now. Yeah. So what is this for you? Talk us through the last, you know, I guess, March 2020 to where you're at today from a standpoint of how things shut down up north. And where's Adam at, right? You've been at your home. You've been, you know, who you're staying with, who's driving you crazy. What's life been like for you from a professional and personal standpoint? It's flown by, to be honest. March 13th, it was kind of the same, I think, timeline as the States for the most part. At work one day and gone the next. I know on the 12th of March, we kind of knew we weren't coming in on the Friday, but thought it would only be for like a week, maybe two weeks. Yeah, same here. Oh, we were so dumb. <laughs> right? So, so naive. I remember I went to a concert on the 12th thinking this is probably going to be the last concert I'm going to see for maybe a month. <laughs> Little did I know it's the last concert I'd see for at least six months until a drive-in. And I made the most of it, that's for sure. Kind of on that note, I went to our office just to pick up a couple things that were shipped in. And it was like the apocalypse. Because we shut down our offices that time, like nobody's been back, not allowed to go back, especially when the bubble happened. We weren't allowed near the building at all. And once the bubble was ended, I went in to get something and I had a calendar on my desk, printed out with all the shows on it, very old school. And I scratch out with Sharpie every day and it was just frozen in time. Like the oh, wow. last show that I marked off was the Lumineers and the rest of March, which was a busy month, supposed to be a busy month, was just frozen in time. It was weird, bizarre. But yeah, so we've been shut down in terms of working from our office since March 12th. And in order to go back, I think our team has a really good heads on its shoulders that if we do want to go in, there's a lot of procedures to go through. And other than that, we've just been working from home. I've been working from an Ikea table with an Ikea chair, which is awful for my back. And I keep on telling myself I'm going to get a new one because, you know, we're now finally in this, but it's always been like, oh, it's only going to be a couple more weeks or a month or whatever. So yeah, I'm working from home. I'm staying sane as much as I can, like the rest of us, right? Do you think the office format, I know they're talking about this, of course, in so many different industries of when things do go back, do we go back to the five-day week? And I'm sure it really depends on the industry, but do you think for our industry or you know where you are in Canada, when things feel comfortable, are they going to bring everyone back or is it going to kind of go to a rotation of you know a few days here, a few days remote? What's a five-day week, Paul? I don't think any of us have ever had a five-day week. <laughs> no kidding. Right? Oh, my God. That's true. You poked a hole right in it. How about seven days and five nights? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. That's a great question. I think everyone's going to be different. You know, I think every company believes in work from home a lot more or less than others. I know ours was kind of, it depended on your boss, you know, in that sense. But we've definitely, I think a lot of people have learned like, oh, you can actually get a lot more done 
we've done more things in the last six months than we could do in two years, I feel like things just accelerated. And but I don't know, it's hard to say, I feel like I probably won't go back five days, I think it'll be taking days when you need to like, I'll go in for show days, for example, and be there for the day. But do I need to go in the next day? Probably not. I could probably work from home a lot more efficiently. So, you know, I think we're going to start to take a look at that. And, and that's how I'm going to run with my team. And we kind of did that before, but hard to say. I mean, I think it's going to be all over the place. It's funny. We just renovated our office. We have a 15 story office tower connected to the arena and we slowly were floor by floor. Our building's 20. So imagine, you know, a 20 year old office building, very office-y, very cubicle. It didn't look like the Leafs of the Raptors office. It looked like an accounting firm. And now it's all open concept and it's the worst idea. Right. Yeah, it's very open. There's just cubicles wall to wall. Did you go into it? I think it was when we went to the Maple Leafs game. So that would have been before the reno. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, wasn't it open concept then too? With cubicles, but now it's very like marketing agency where you're talking to somebody like two meters away from you. They're like, we're going to remove all the walls and then COVID happens and they're like, shit. (laughs) And then COVID happened. Yeah. So now it's like, oh, maybe we should have. Be thinking. Just kidding. Put all the walls back in and make them twice as high. (laughs) You know, one of the things when we're in this position where our office becomes our home. And it's hard to leave work. So what have you been doing for yourself? What are you doing to keep your mental health? How are you finding that balance? What's been working for you? I just try to keep a separation. For me, my thing is I've been keeping my setup at my dining table. I haven't been taking my laptop to my couch and working from there so that I can have that separation. We're not at five o'clock, but whenever I can shut down, like I'm shutting down and I'm leaving work at work. That's been the biggest thing I've been trying to do, but it's hard. I mean, there's not really like a formula, right? In order to stay sane for me, I've just been trying to take my mind off of work when I can and and trying to dive in when I can. Yeah, what are you doing for fun these days, Adam? Uh, Is it bad to say I drink a lot? It's just (laughs) honest to say. That's honest. What's the drink of choice? Wine, for sure. Red wine. But no, I'm not sitting here drinking (laughs) wine by myself. (laughs) Have you explored making different cocktails? Are you baking? You know, are you doing anything new? Have you made banana bread yet? I haven't jumped on any of those trains. Like, I haven't jumped on the sourdough train or or anything like that. Oh, man. The thing that I think kept me sane the most during lockdown specifically was my boyfriend and I lived separately, but we would bubble together. So on weekends, we would switch it up. One weekend would be at mine, the other weekend would be at his. So at least I've got some sort of normalcy of leaving my house and going there, walking through the deserted streets of Toronto and feeling like you're breaking the law just to, to get there. But, you know, I think that was the thing that kept me the most sane was instead of like having to stay home by myself forever, I was able to leave or have him come here. Bubble together. I haven't heard that term before. That's nice too, because of course you hear people longing for what they don't have. So often you hear people are either isolated by themselves and they feel like they wish they were with two or three other people, or you have people that are with one, two, three other people. And they're like, I need alone time. They just need it. And so that is kind of a nice situation where you're able to get your alone time and then you're able to bubble with someone else and get some socialization too. Yeah, exactly. Adam, you know, you mentioned your boyfriend. And so I I do want to ask because I feel like, you know, there's a lot of LGBTQ representation within the industry. And and I've talked to people that they're not definitely comfortable finding those people that they can connect with just on that level. So has that been a challenge for you or, you know, in this industry? Or, you know, if you're talking to somebody who's maybe new to the industry and they're in that same kind of position that you're in and they're 
thinking, oh boy, I, I feel like I'm out here by myself, you know, especially coming from a small town. I'm sure, you know, I came from a small town of 8,000 and my best friend was gay. He had real trouble coming out until 10 years after high school. He had to keep it from his family and everybody and it was so tough. But for somebody new to the industry, what words of advice do you have there? It's definitely very, very intimidating. I was the same thing. I went through high school and my entire life in my small town of suppressing that. I didn't realize until much later that that it's okay. But I know, you know, it's it was more intimidating for me in a career to come out than I think to my friends and family. When I worked at my agency before, it was sports and events, right? Just like now. And what comes to mind with sports, it's, you know, it's masculinity and, you know, all of that. And, you know, there was no other gay people in my agency or anything like that. So it was terrifying to come out at work because you're scared it's going to jeopardize your career advancements because your boss is a bro, right? And so if your boss that's a bro doesn't like that, well, then then what, right? You're shit out of luck. Got over that quite quickly when I realized it was totally fine and it didn't affect anything. And then when I came down to LSE, it was kind of that same blinders on. It's like, okay, well, I'm out in my old career and in my friends and family, but I'm going to keep this work thing maybe a little separate because it's a professional sports organization and that's just intimidating. That slowly fizzled away quite quickly. So I know it can seem kind of intimidating, but... I think it depends on like who you surround yourself with, but the words of advice would just be the best product that you're going to give in terms of work is when you're yourself. So even if it's a bit of a bump at the start, which it likely won't be as much as you think it's going to be, you know, you're not going to be as creative and as good at what you're doing when you're trying to be somebody else. So it's likely just going to work against you. But yeah, it's totally intimidating. But I wouldn't go back and try and hide it again. That's for sure. Appreciate you being open and sharing that with us because I know that it's definitely something that we haven't done a great job of addressing as a conference and as part of our diversity and inclusion committee. It's definitely something that we want to do a better job of, you know, connecting people, you know, they're looking for those connections. We're getting into that and we're learning how to do better. I think that's been a big thing for all of us through this entire process. You mentioned staying busy and, and learning to do better. So Tell me about what the social justice vibe has been like in Toronto. Has it been as strong of a connection to the world of entertainment and and your venue and just your city as much as it has been in the States? Absolutely, it has. Absolutely. You don't see as much of it being protests and taking over the streets as much in Toronto, but it is just as alive here as it is anywhere else. It's been a lot of learning at MLSE and everywhere in our organization, we've taken it quite seriously. And it opens your eyes to a lot of things that maybe you didn't think of before. We've really tried to dive into it as much as we can at our organization. And we've actually just hired a senior vice president of diversity and inclusion. So very excited to see how that shapes out and what she's going to bring to us. That's great. But yeah, overall in Toronto and Canada, it is very much alive. And there's definitely still a lot of work that needs to be done in Canada. It's not just the States. You mentioned Toronto. What's the feeling in Toronto right now with COVID and the masks? And so, you know, obviously we're a little polarized here. <laughs> and Paul, I know in Kentucky, everybody's on the exact same page, right? <laughs> Adam, you can probably speak to this better, but you know, as much as the countries are very separate in some ways and they're able to sort of close the borders or do whatever they need to do, Our industry, I would say in particular, operates generally in an open border format with tours. A lot of people dip up into Canada a lot. So I think maybe you could speak to how things that are happening in the U.S., you don't have to get political, but you know how it is affecting Canada. You're not able to really isolate yourselves because you have a lot of U.S. artists. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people don't understand how blended our industry really is, right? You don't look at the Polestar charts as Canada, America, it's it's North America. The touring industry is one big landmass. But to answer your first question, I'm proud of our city in the sense that everybody has no problem wearing masks. Everybody is super on board with it. We flattened the curve at the start. We're just at the time of this recording, like about to head into our second wave. But that second wave is still, you know, we had 350 new cases in the province of Ontario, which I think is less than 200 in the city of Toronto. It's impressive. No, no, really. Which to us sounds like a lot, but we're locking things down again. And so that makes me happy and that makes me proud. But at the same time, it doesn't help our industry, right? So there was Red Alert. We had the Canadian version, which was Light Up Live, which is raising awareness for our industry to everybody else of, hey, you know what? We're the first industry out the last one that's going to come back. You know, I think there's a two-sided coin here. The good news is even if we flatten the curve and we're able to have live events of 20,000 people again before you guys are south of the border, which I don't think is going to be happening anytime soon regardless, you know, it gives an opportunity for Canadian content and Canadian artists and Canadian crew, right? So instead of taking the lighting director and designer and the roadies from the same tour from California or anywhere, you're going to give an opportunity for people to flourish their careers in Canada a little bit more, which is fine, but there's also only so many cities to tour in. There's only so many big artists. There's only so many artists that will be able to develop in a short period of time to become arena artists. So there's that. But yeah, at the end of the day, Lady Gaga or Beyonce or any of these artists, you know, we keep on rescheduling. Everybody is going through the same thing. If you're punting this tour over and over and over and over again, those aren't going to be able to go north of the border until they can tour south of the border. So we're really relying heavily on the states to be able to have our industry come back north of the border. You helped treat us to a Glass Tiger Corey Hart concert the last time we were up north there with you. And it's great to see the love for the Canadian artists, right? The Canadian content. <laughs> I know you're not just sitting there talking to us today. You're also planning a lot of events. You guys are busy. You've been doing a lot of the driving events. Tell me some of the stuff you guys have been putting on up there. It has been very busy, which is bizarre to say. When we came into lockdown, it was a very quick holy shit moment for all of us, obviously. But, you know, we sat down and we figured out how do we pivot? How do we pivot our business and make marketing, you know, is typically a cost center, right? We're just spending other people's money and that's an easy thing to cut. So how do we turn marketing from a cost center into a new revenue stream? And, and what does that look like? And so lockstep with our partnership team, we decided to create a brand new entity of television show. And so it worked out perfect timing with Rogers, which is our television provider. It's kind of like our Verizon north of the border here. They had airtime because there's nothing going on in terms of sports. Budweiser for Budweiser Stage wanted to activate on music. And Live Nation and MLSE came together to be able to put together Budweiser Stage at Home, a national television series from coast to coast. So we had eight episodes, hour-long performances from artists that would have been featured at Bud Stage in the summer, but coming to us from their home. We decided, you know, you see all these Instagram lives happening. They were everywhere but the quality is kind of shit and it's not quite the same. So how do we make that be fully produced show? We did that and it kept on going and it got extended and then we did a special edition and who knows what's going to be next with that. But that was, I'll tell you, producing a television show is a whole other beast than marketing a concert. So learned a lot, but we had some great teams to be able to help pull that off. So that was a lot of fun. And then, yeah, the drive-in. We were a little late to the drive-in game compared to a lot of other places, but we banded together with Live Nation and our sports teams to be able to share the costs, which I think was huge. And also our partnerships team was able to go and sell 
a naming rights to it. So it's called the OLG PlayStage, OLG being our lottery in Ontario. So they forked up some dollars to help stand it up and then split the cost between Raptors viewing parties, Leafs viewing parties, and then driving concerts. And so the production value is great. Yeah, I mean, we were a little late to it, but I think we were able to come in strong and people are just so appreciative of being able to go and watch a show or watch the game. And, you know, it's a different experience, but it's a fun one nonetheless. And what kind of artists are you seeing? I'm assuming for the drive-in, it's a little more mid-level to lower, but, you know, people are just looking for live events, so they're kind of happy for it. But then maybe for the at-home series, were you able to get some bigger names because you had some more flexibility of doing it remotely? Totally, totally. So the drive-in is, once again, Canadian touring artists that typically are home-based in Toronto. So it's the mid-levels, nothing too special, but they all did really well and sold out, right? But for Pod Stage at Home, you know, we had John Legend performing from his home in front of his EGOT wall, which was a pretty great moment. Alanis Morissette was one of the most anticipated concerts to be at Pod Stage this summer and sold out instantly, and we were able to bring that to life. The Black Crows were supposed to do their reunion tour, so they kicked off our series, and they performed from their houses. And it was interesting because we had to obviously follow so many safety protocols when we're going into a celebrity's house, but we were able to do it. And it was, yeah, much different caliber of talent. What do you wish you knew back when you were starting this that you know now? If you could go back and just give Adam a little bit of advice. Hey, here's something you're going to know as you're starting this. That we didn't need to fill a gap for six months, that we needed to fill a gap for a lot longer than that. We tried to go in and create a Band-Aid solution for what was going to be a handful of months, but now we're like, holy man, it's winter and you can't do outdoor stuff in Canada in winter. So what's next? And so we're kind of having that same brainstorm session now as a team of like, okay, cool. Like, what are we going to do now? And confident we're going to find some stuff. And we've got a couple of cool things in the pipeline, but it would have been nice to have that forethought. You mentioned it at the beginning of our talk here today is that we all thought it was going to be two weeks and then, but you know, we'll be back by summer. Yeah. You know, we'll be back yeah. by summer. And then, and there's that show in September. That's definitely happening. Yep. And now we're all just keeping our fingers crossed, right? Yeah, maybe next September, right? We'll, we'll be fine. <laughs> Who knows? And going through the financial models of budgets and all this, and I'm sure everybody kind of had to do the same thing of model A, if we're back to shows at this time, model B, if this, model C, and all of those are even now all out the window, right? We're all not even creating models anymore. It's just, okay, well, let's wait and see. And then, then we'll figure it out. Before we wrap things up here, my good friend and co-host Paul Hooper had a great list of little questions here. So I'm going to hit you with some rapid fire questions. Okay. Okay. Hit me. First concert. Aerosmith. Favorite concert. Oh, that's a tough one. Um, the Spice Girls on my birthday in Edinburgh. <laughs> Nicest musician you've ever met. Celine Dion. Coolest production you've seen. Beyonce and Jay-Z. If you could play in any band for a week on tour, who would it be? Wait, wait, wait. Um, let me guess. Is it Trooper? <laughs> or is it Kim Mitchell? <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, we already talked about that. I can't play anything. So let's say if you could play an instrument, you don't have to limit yourself to the kazoo joining ACDC or something, you know? Yeah, right. Say you're the best at your instrument and you want to join a band. Queen. What's your favorite social platform? Instagram. What's your social media pet peeve? People that don't put spaces between hashtags. If you went on tour, what would your name be? Um, Can I answer this one? Sure. DJ Wildfire. Yes. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Perfect. Love that. Last one. What do you love most about your job? Honestly, I say this every time and my answer will never change. And we haven't been able to experience it for a long time. But it's when you're sitting at the soundboard or you're in the pit with photographers or wherever you are in the building and the lights go down, the house music stops and there's that silence before the band starts and the first drum of that guitar and the crowd goes nuts. And it just makes everything that we do 
and all of the shitty shows that you go through sometimes and maybe a frustrating promoter or, you know, some shows are better than others, obviously in terms of planning them, but all of that goes away and it's all worth it when 20,000 fans or 200 fans just go nuts. That's awesome. Yeah. I miss that feeling so much. Could not have said it better. Can't wait to have it again. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure having you on. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everyone for listening to Adventures in Venue Land. Remember, you can subscribe and find more episodes wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'd love your five-star reviews so you can help others find us. Until the next adventure, I'm Dave Rettelberger. And I'm Paul Hooper. Thanks for listening, everyone.